This is the K-pop cast, bringing you the best sounds and ideas in K-pop each week. And today, as part of our spooky Halloween series, we're going to talk about the dark side of K-pop, or rather, why we see so much tired, lazy Western media coverage of the negative aspects of K-pop, such as racism, plastic surgery, suicide, rabid fans, where those articles frame those issues as if they are unique to Korea and K-pop. We as fans know this issue all too well, so why does it keep happening? And even in preparing this episode, we just did a basic Google search of dark side of K-pop and came up with a bunch of very large publications talking about this topic. Talking about Forbes, Fortune, New York Times, Billboard. Uh, And in the inverse, when we just searched for, you know, the dark side of pop, very few results pop up. I think Stephanie found just like one about Britney Spears. Yeah, let's let's read some of these headlines, actually. Some of the ones we found in our Google search include the dark truth behind the glamorous world of K-pop, assault, prostitution, suicide, and spy cams. And uh, the dark side of K-pop was what drew me to the genre. Hmm, I'm interested in reading that one. <laughs> that says more about the reporter. Um, but yeah, this is just a small sample of the results we found doing a, a search for articles with dark side of K-pop in the title. So without further ado, um, to answer these questions about what is going on here behind the scenes, we have some really special guests on the show that we want to introduce to you. But first, my name's Stephanie. I'm one of your hosts here. And I'm your PD name, Michaela. So guests, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, guys. My name is Crystal Bell. I'm a culture writer and I write for sites like Teen Vogue, Paper Magazine, Nylon, L, and I write a lot about K-pop. Ooh, the dream. Right on. <laughs> then we have Todd. Hey, it's your boy, Todd, returning champ, Woo. contributing writer for San Francisco Chronicle Datebook, big fan of Crystal, big fan of journalism in general. Let's go. All right. And we also received comments and quotes from some friends of the podcast, including Jenna Million from Name Three Songs podcast. And from Emily Heidel, who works as an integrated marketing consultant from various Korean companies. Yes. So we are definitely going to get to the bottom of these questions and answers tonight because we have like heavy hitter industry insiders on the show. Cannot wait to just get into it, get deep. So first off, like just from a fan's perspective, my first question to you all is why do these stories exist in the first place? It doesn't feel like they're written for me because I just make me mad. Why do they exist? I'll kind of kick it off. I do think that there's a lack of education just in general about Asia. And so I think a lot of people want to, or a lot of um, publications try to get the least common denominator thing going and that attracts readers and it makes things, make people think that, oh, if they read about this, maybe I can get some clicks on it. So mostly it's about a, a lack of knowledge about what goes on, not just musically, but just across the Pacific. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think industry-wide, there's been a real push towards these sensationalized headlines. And I'm not just specific to K-pop, but K-pop's definitely part of that. But across various websites, I mean, we all know the industry is kind of in turmoil. So of course, clickbait is the way to go. I know I've, I've been through it. I have friends in the industry. We've all written these kind of clickbaity headlines, more insidious kinds of stories that we don't like. Uh, a lot of the true crime, like a lot of a lot of basically uh, people click on these stories that are generally about darkness, right? Mm. So I think it's a combination of that. Plus, uh, as Todd was saying, the ignorance surrounding not only K-pop as an industry, but also just the xenophobia of surrounding a culture that is not that we don't understand necessarily. And so you're already kind of exoticizing an entire culture. So I think it's that combination, right? Of like websites needing these sensationalized kinds of headlines, in addition to not really understanding why something is so popular, but knowing it's popular and doing just like the bare minimum kind of surface level journalism. Mm, yes, yes. I really love those two points you just brought up. And I think uh, Jenna from Name Three Songs and her comment, really ties those two points together because she says that stories that cover the quote unquote dark side tropes aren't for K-pop fans. They're clickbait for outsiders. So that just, I think, sums up the part where you have people who have heard of K-pop, maybe. Maybe they read the first wave of generic, lazy K-pop articles that just talk about K-pop, the global phenomenon. Wow. <laughs> you know, those stories where the, the wave that came out first but then we have folks who are just primed to be ready for there to be something wrong with K-pop. They want to hate it. They want it to fail, right? Because America has to be number one, right? We can't be threatened by this. Well, and I also think it's that search for, there must be something dark, right? There must yeah. be, what is the explanation for why this this music and why this industry is kind of taking over globally, Right. And there must, you know, there's people who like to poke holes in things. There's a real, especially within journalism, music journalism, this has been talked a lot about, like the whole poptimism wave, but there's a lot of cynicism in music journalism. Mm, poptimism. That's a new one. Take note, readers. Yeah. yeah, especially about pop music. There's always been a lot of cynicism, a lot of, you know, criticism against pop music in general. And then you bring something like K-pop, which I think has this really unfair fortunate and unfair label that it's very manufactured, right? And it just, it's like, of course, journalists are going to like hate it, <laughs> especially like music journalists. There's a reason why it doesn't really get a lot of coverage, right? Among quote unquote, serious music journalists and journalism sites. So I think it's a, it's a convergence of all of these things for sure. I'd love to hear Todd's response to that as a serious music journalist. Well, I do see a, a similarity to how we covered hip-hop back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, they didn't understand Black culture. They just knew it was a sound where people wore baggy clothes and and broke breakdanced in the streets and occasionally shot each other. And so the it bleeds, it leads sort of narrative kind of comes into play where mainstream publications don't understand the culture. I've never been down on, you know, down on the block. You know, they don't know what's happening. So what they do is they hear somebody get shot or get arrested or get charged with gun possession or drugs. Of course, they're going to cover it, but they don't really know 
the musical background of it. So it's something that's endemic to edgy music scenes, I guess, or like, you know, yeah. cultures and that they don't understand. So a lot of times in the beginning when I was writing about hip hop was I'd always have to explain things like, oh, the DJ was scratching. Can you please put in something about what scratching is? Okay, it's when you take the record, you move it rhythmically back and forth and the DJ uses the crossfader, which is part of a mixer. And you just have to ex- rap-splain everything. And I see a similarity when we have to do that the last three years, sometimes with some articles I do, because, oh, not everybody knows what K-pop is. Can you explain what that is? And so when editors who are less smart about the culture get their hands on it, and there's been a couple examples of this, they have to explain. And they say, well, what is K-pop? Well, it's BTS, and that's where pretty much where it ends. And then they have to explain oh, what no. BTS is. This is why BTS is in almost every non-mainstream or every mainstream story that's in not even really tangentially related to the topic, like a Stray Kids story or TXT, and then you have to somehow bring in BTS. Well, mm. and then the fandoms go nuts because they think, you know, <laughs> you're, you're comparing, comparing them. them. How could you? Oh, my goodness. So there's ignorance. Yes. That's fascinating. In the, in the publications. The, yeah, yeah. You, you named the role of the editor there as being someone who comes in after the fact and says, oh, we need to insert all of this extra context or insert things. I, I guess the editor is trying to represent an objective, quote unquote, normal person, listener or an outsider, but they're really kind of representing their own personal viewpoint. Or ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to say that, but yeah. It's definitely something, I mean, I, full disclosure, I am an editor, my my day job, I edit and I have a history of editing at MTV News. So I'm both an editor and a writer, and I'm really happy to work with a whole bunch of editors at my publication that publications that definitely understand K-pop. And if they don't understand K-pop, then they at least trust that I understand it and they put a lot of faith into me. So I've definitely had to, you know, explain certain things, but thankfully everyone that I work with is very open-minded and they listen and I love it. Um, But I will say as an editor, you're always thinking about your audience. And one of the conversations I always have with fellow journalists, especially people who are on the K-pop beat, who cover Korean artists, every time there's kind of like a more controversial article, right? My number one question is always like, who is this for? Like, who are you writing for? And I think that's the editor's job, right? Like, if you're going to read an article in Billboard or Bloomberg about K-pop, you're going to assume, like, maybe it has a business leaning because it's those publications, that's their kind of audience. And then when you're reading, you know, on Teen Vogue, for example, you're probably going to get something a little bit more artist-focused and really about, like, the music and the personal relationships between artists and fans, which is amazing, so I all, I often think it's the editor's responsibility really to know their audience, to know what their audience wants and to and, and so I don't always blame certain publications for having different viewpoints. Like I do think that there's room to have business articles about K-pop just like there's room to have like beautiful profiles and features about K-pop. But a lot of times the things that get lost, right, are those nuances. And so I do think a lot of editors, like Todd is saying, they're just more ignorant and they don't quite understand the industry. They definitely don't understand the fans. They don't understand those certain nuances, little details that make a huge difference. 
And I think sometimes you're just so blinded by like our audience wants this. You're not open really to hearing other people's viewpoints and opinions. And to me, the best articles come in collaboration. So I'm very happy that I've worked with very collaborative editors, but I do think it is an editor's responsibility to know what their site wants. Yeah, totally. Thank you for that perspective. I really like how what Todd did just now was um, was draw salient comparisons between K-pop and you know practices of coverage to, in hip hop in the U.S. I think there's so many lines of comparison and lineage and inspiration and appropriation. There's just so many connections between things that quote unquote go wrong with K-pop and things that are wrong with America <laughs> that um, it almost seems like, and, and, and Jenna brings this up in her comment as well, that part of the temptation to cover the dark side of K-pop is to kind of project and point the finger at this foreign country for doing things the wrong way. And implicitly that makes the American system seem better. It's just like, just the fact that K-pop is covered as like, oh, they're super capitalist. They're super manufactured. It's all about the money. It's not about the music. It's like, you could say that about the U.S., right? But they don't. The entire music industry is capitalism and is labor law. Like, you know, like the entire, what I actually respect at least about the Korean music industry is that it is explicit. You know exactly, you know, the the hierarchy, who's getting what, you know, it's more explicit. Whereas I think in the U.S., there is a lot of darkness in the music industry here, but it goes under the rug. No one really talks about it. And we're only seeing the effects of that now that we're, you know, we're getting documentaries about Britney Spears and, yeah. and the pop stars of the early aughts. They're writing their autobiographies. They're like Jessica Simpson just had her autobiography the last year, year and a half. So I feel like these artists now, 20 years later, are finally opening up about truly like how scarred they were. Look at um, Jeanette McCurdy on the Disney Channel, right? Just wrote an entire book about how psychologically abused she was by the creator of her show. So it's not just music, right? It's a whole industry in Hollywood as well. So I think like there's a lot that can be said about there just being darkness in every industry. Um, but at least with K-pop, it's it's way more explicit. <laughs> and I hmm. kind of respect it. Mm-hmm. Honesty is refreshing. So I was wondering if um, if either or both of you would be willing to go into uh, personal stories, personal experiences with maybe you being assigned to write a story like this or you wanting to add nuance or complexity to a story and having to argue, fight for it. Like what, what are those exchanges like in the newsroom or <laughs> whatever you call it? <laughs> oh, I've got a couple, but I'm trying to, I want to be on good terms with my editor because I, I do appreciate her. I would, I do say that uh, I think the first story that kind of kicked the door down for me at the Chronicle was reviewing Super M about on Super Bowl Sunday. And I had read enough uh, about the group and about the, this was my uh, my second K-pop concert. The first one was NCT 127. And 
I kind of knew enough not to put too much emphasis on the reactions of, of the fans and, and also not to brush with a, a very wide color them all one screaming mass of people. Yes, they were screaming. Yes, they were having a good time. Did I have to say that they were screaming and having a good time? Eh, maybe not. Maybe not to the point where they're, you know, like Beatlemania, which is something that I've learned that has become a trope when when covering live shows or K-pop in general, that it's just all teeny boppers, you know, screaming their heads off, which it absolutely wasn't. And when going through edits and they want to add this extra color in, uh, yes, we had to add in some BTS stuff in there, I believe. Um and just talk about why it's so big or why is it playing the SAP Center in San Jose? Why did it get this far? Fair enough. But they stood on their own. And I think I might have pushed back on a couple of things. So I believe the article is purely on the group. But there are times when they say, well, our readership still doesn't really know. And fair enough, it is a mainstream newspaper, you know, dead tree edition that people are going to read on, on their bar trip or they're going to read, you know, while they're waiting at the DMV. They're not going to know who Taman is. You know, do I need to like explain a little bit, a little bit of background? Maybe, yeah. But not to the point where we have to break down every single bit of of the history, um, bring in Soteji and Oh my gosh, the boys he's and, been or, dragged out you know, so many times. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but at the same time, it's like, not this time, okay? Because we're focusing on the event. We'll keep it straight to the event. So there, I've been pretty lucky so far. I do know that I'm not in charge of the headlines and they will drag out the B to the T to the S because they want those clicks, uh. because they know those things will get some traction. And for what it's worth, um, I can't fight those because those those will go out and that's the way it is. And, and this is when I'm not, this is when I'm covering the culture as a whole, like in the San Francisco Bay Area, I did this kind of retrospective concert, not a retrospective, but like a preview of the summer concerts that were coming through and about the the fandom in the Bay Area. And I believe, yes, there was some BTS mentions <gasps> in there. Um, but enough about BTS. <laughs> but uh, I'd be interested more about Crystal, who's been, has more skin in the game. <laughs> what, what your experiences are? Um, you know, I will say I've been pretty lucky again to work with editors that allow me to have say in headlines. In fact, a lot of the editors I work with will show me the final headline and we'll come up with it together. We'll, so I, that's a very rare thing, though, just to put that out there. For I think there's a this is a whole other conversation, but not a lot of people understand how media works. And I will say writers do not control headlines often. I'm just fortunate to work with editors who understand the perils of like a bad headline and what that could do to you on Twitter. But yeah, when I worked, so previously I worked at MTV and again, very lucky to work for companies that are all about fandom and understand fandom and, and, uh, youth culture. So I think I'm pretty fortunate in that regard. Like I didn't have to do very much like case planning as Todd was saying, like I, I had I got to do it from a really fun, more fandom-centric place. But um, I worked on, or I, I pitched and created a show about the fandom experience for K-pop fans. And my job was to say, how do we make this like 
as nuanced as possible. Like, because we know fandom isn't a monolith and we know, especially for K-pop fans, it's not a monolith. So my job was really to sit down and say, episode to episode, like, what are we going to focus on? So it was important that we focus on queer representation and queer fandom in the K-pop space. It was important that we focus on the experience of being a Black fan, especially for Black women in K-pop. And that was an entire episode. So I think, again, it's about having someone in a position of power who knows what they're doing, who knows the fandom, who knows the industry. And I I really didn't have to fight very many battles with that. I was pretty, they, they trusted that I kind of knew, which I'm, again, a very unusual experience in this industry. But there were other battles that I had to face where just more general across the board, like we don't know if we can have entire YouTube videos in Korean, like maybe we shouldn't interview artists unless they're able to like speak some English. You know, I've had those conversations and like those conversations are way more uncomfortable. And, uh, I, I got way more upset. Uh, thankfully again, it's all, but you have to like, you know, I was able to fight for what I really believed in. And I don't think that because I, because I was in a position of power already, Mm. I think it would, really, really hard for someone who um, wasn't director level like I was to kind of fight for those things. So yeah, it's all about having the right people in the room, to be quite honest, because I, wherever you work, even if you work at a, a, a youth a music network, that doesn't mean that they understand K-pop. Like maybe they understand it now, but they didn't understand it five years ago, let me tell you. Like, you know, so it's, it's, it's slow. You know, people are learning. They are. Uh, groups are promoting here. They're, you know, this past these past few months have been kind of intense. There's been so many groups back in the U.S., mm-hmm. so many groups who are doing interviews in studios, in stations. I just saw, I was watching an N-Hypen interview on MTV Fresh Out. So it's like, they're back to promoting. So these, th- it's important to talk about these things because I think it's becoming a regular occurrence now with mainstream media to have a K-pop act as a featured guests. And oftentimes, especially when it comes to TV, right? It's for views and mm-hmm. it's for on social media. So I think there's two things. There's the exploitation on social media. That's like, we're just doing this for the engagement. And yep. then there's like the fundamental ignorance and misunderstanding, of like what K-pop is, right? There's still so many people that call it a genre yeah. and we're like, how many times have, do we have to say it's an industry? Yeah. I'm old school though. I still call it a genre. You do? Okay. I do. I mean, you go if you go to a you know a big box store like a that's you go to Target, that is fair. If you go to like Tower Records, if they still exist, there's probably one in Japan. Mm. Where am I going to find it? Am I going to find it in the pop section? No. no. Um, even I've like in, indie stores, they do have a K-pop section. I do yeah. think that's a genre. It is an industry. I agree. It's a culture. Yeah. But I also think musically, the sound to me, I I, I maybe it's my own lack of education, but I do feel, I still feel natural calling it a genre. Mm. I haven't been called out on it yet. (laughs) I will say this, I think it's becoming less important as genre just is going away entirely almost, you know, I think genre is becoming kind of um, less binary in general. So, and and K-pop certainly at the forefront of that, right. By meshing all these genres. So listen, I, I think you can definitely make a case for it, but I think it's when there isn't any understanding, right, of the larger culture around it, of the larger industry around it is when we get into trouble. Yep. 
Indeed. Michaela, I want to pass it to you here. Since we're starting to talk about the fan experience, maybe you could share feelings and thoughts that come up when yet another dark side of K-pop headline comes across your timeline. What are you thinking there? Well, I think I kind of want to bring it back to this whole discussion about like the intention of these these kinds of stories and if they are actually improving the industry in any way and actually like helping to, you know, maybe shed light on these these dark sides. And I, I kind of want to go back to to Jenna's comment actually that she mentioned about how when they, you know, they have their own podcast and they talk about feminist issues and issues with mental health and sexism from the frame of Western music. And so they felt confident in being able to maybe do like a dark side of K-pop topic. But she she mentions that at the time, and now she realizes that there are really, there are major nuances at play when you tackle a topic like that. So like first, you know, covering that topic or covering difficult subjects without understanding the culture for one doesn't do service to the industry or or to whoever is the subject of that topic in the first place. And no matter how well-intentioned stories that come from outsiders continue to fall into the negative stereotypes and are, are generally more harmful than good. And so Crystal, when you mentioned like now here in, in the Western market where we see like actual artists specifically coming out and telling their own stories, I feel from from my perspective as a fan, when it comes to these kinds of dark side of K-pop stories, I'd rather hear them from the artists because I feel like that is the case where you get the most nuanced, most respectful take on this kind of topic because it's coming from the artists themselves. Now, mm-hmm. obviously in K-pop, when we hmm. have to you know, deal with things like idol image and and again, you have such a, a harsh power structure in who can actually like say yeah. what about what's going on in the industry. I don't, you know, I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. I do feel yeah. though that we've had a lot of, especially Korean Americans who were in the industry, mm-hmm, that's who I'm leaving of. Korea now <laughs> and coming out and being able to actually freely tell yeah. their stories, like you know Amber and Eric Nam, Jamie, and, you know Ben, Jamie. Like, so, I I feel like specifically when it comes to dark side of K-pop as a fan, I prefer to hear them from the artists versus an outsider journalist perspective, yeah. because even the well-intentioned, it's still the best perspective to have. Yeah, I completely agree. And definitely it is something that uh, me and a lot of other journalists want. You know, we wish that a lot of times these idols were able to speak more freely about some of these topics, but also understand it's completely their right to not want to do that. Um, right. It's hard when there are obviously image and labels involved and you don't really know, but that's the case with, you know, celebrity journalism, it, you know, everywhere it's like your every request is going through a team of publicists being like, do I want my artist or do I want my client to talk about this? Probably not. So we run into that a lot with K-pop, but I will say like, um, I don't know if you listen to mindset, but I'm a big fan of dive studios and what they're trying to do, especially again, with a lot of the Korean American or Korean Canadian, um, um, idols, you know, that freedom to kind of tell their own stories in their own terms. I know they just had 
Vernon from 17 did his mindset, which is like a series of mini podcasts. And now DK from 17 is doing his own mindset. So it's like very, I personally love hearing them talk about themselves, about their upbringing, about their journey to where they are now, even some of their struggles. So I do think that it is coming. And I obviously prefer when it's, you know, kind of Korean owned and operated business. And they're the ones who are really, you know, out doing the outreach and like making sure that Asian artists can tell their stories. And I love that. So it is happening, maybe not as fast as we want it to, but it's definitely, you know, it's in the works. And then I think from, you know, a Western journalist's perspective, I completely agree with Jenna and her take. It's, it, I think when you are covering a culture that is not your own, you have to be 10 times more aware of everything you're saying and every, you know, uh, and you have to be 10 times more um, literate about things. And, uh, you know, reading so much (laughs) is what I, a lot of my job is just reading and seeing and talking to scholars and talking to sources in Korea. Like I want to make sure I'm understanding things correctly. And I don't necessarily know if some of these journalists who are assigned stories like this are taking the time to do that or if they often don't have the time to do that. A lot of this is these stories seem to be published quite quickly and probably get up within the day. So there's a lot of failures of modern journalism and also just uh, lack of research in general and lack of, um, you know, lack of just talking directly to sources in this, in when we're covering, when we're covering K-pop, especially these kind of dark side stories. Yes, yes, exactly. To build on that, I'm remembering um, the conversation I had with Jenna um, when I went on their podcast. They they, they invited me on to talk about K-pop and kind of uh, educate them on what, what I know about the fandom and the culture. And I think they were a bit surprised when I started turning the the microphone or the camera back on them to ask, well, what about you? Know thyself first before you even think you can go and talk to or talk about another culture. Like, do you know where you racially, culturally sit in this, in the hierarchy? Like, do you know Mm -hmm. about yourself and the history of your people and American culture and colonialism and imperialism (laughs) and all of that stuff? Like that, that background is, I think, even more fundamental than uh, than like reading up really quickly on uh, Korea, because if you don't know yourself and the dynamics you bring to the conversation, then you're going to you're going to mess up um, even if you think you're you're humble. So I, I really enjoyed the conversation with them um, because like, yeah, we were we were grappling with some challenging questions and, and looking at ourselves instead of putting the magnifying glass on this other country. I was just thinking about the spectrum of coverage where the music writer position, it's mostly going away, but it still exists in some places. And they're predominantly older white men positions. And so they're, you know, they'll be right. They're going to be talking about the Rolling Stones and and uh, Jack Johnson or whoever comes to town. And so now because of the, the groups are getting more popular, the bigger groups are going to be playing in their city. They have zero like reference. And so that's when we have these mistakes and these easily correctable things and it's be and framing the artists as products of of a potentially abusive system allegedly. 
Now, on the other side, you have the younger kids and who don't, who aren't as smart about media literacy. And so they feel that every story needs to be 100% positive in this sort of almost like a PR release. And why didn't you talk about this? And and on both sides of the scale, it's like all the the fandoms will will jump on the older um, music writers, and they they're no they're probably not going to touch K-pop again because they're too damn scared now because they stepped in it really badly. Yeah, and they've like their hand and their face slapped upside the head. But the other end of the scale, it's like younger writers feel that. The articles have to be fan service mm. and leave out a lot of salient points that need to be made and or putting it in the context. Mm-hmm. So that's where the middle ground is. Mm-hmm. We need to be like the smart ones, the you know the uh, the curators of 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 col- of our culture, of this culture. Yes, well said. Yeah, it's a really it's such a tightrope to walk, I think. And I completely agree. I do think that it's either one or the other. It's either someone completely misunderstanding and and, and misidentifying what it is they're experiencing, or it's the kind of journalism that unfairly gets labeled as like fan journalism, where it's like someone who's clearly very emotionally invested, writing um, very kind of fluffy, they call them puff pieces. And, (laughs) but you know, they're writing very like, um, you know, very puffy kind of pieces being like, oh, they're, this, this group is great and their music is great and they love each other. And, and I do think that uh, the important thing that I wanted to emphasize in a conversation like this is that there should be room to talk about some of these more unsavory parts of the industry, just like there should be room in, in all journalism and Western journalism. I mean, there's a real stand culture is really affecting the way that music and is getting written about both K-pop, but also Western music. I mean, you have certain fans of pop stars, huge Western pop stars who are going after critics, who are going after writers, who are, you know, it's the same kind of behavior. So I don't want to say it's like a one thing or the other. I think it's a very large problem happening in our entire industry. But with K-pop, you know, there are these really just nuanced stories that we could be telling and we should be telling. But I do think it, it it it's very hard because you have an industry that's reluctant to talk about it. So that leaves the journalist feeling like, well, how am I ever going to get to the bottom of the story if, the, you know, the industry gatekeepers won't talk about it? The artists themselves won't talk about it. The fans don't want me to talk about it. So then ultimately, a lot of these more important stories don't get written. And hopefully, you know, things start to change and we will start seeing that kind of journalism. Um, but at the moment, it's very hard to write about these stories in a in a nuanced way, in a way that, that I think that they should be told, unfortunately. Because um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't tell stories about mental health and you shouldn't tell stories about potential abuses of power. Those are all very important, especially for smaller artists, smaller groups. We know that they're probably the most impacted, right? So I want to, we want to shed light on that, but we also, it's incredibly hard. The industry makes it incredibly hard to do so. What immediately came to mind was the Nine Muses documentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. talking about that. Now, on one side, it could be viewed as exploitative, but at the same time, it did shed a lot of light on a lot of issues that are going on in the industry. And it's, I don't know how, 10 years old, maybe more. Um, I just want to know what your thoughts were because 
as a relatively new person covering the thing, I found it, I watched that thing to death. I thought yeah. it was great. But uh, at the time, what was the feeling when the Nine Muses doc? Was it the dark side of K-pop type of story or documentary or was it something else? I can't speak to it at the time because I do think I watched it a few years after on Netflix. I remember it was on Netflix in like 2012, 2013. Actually, I don't want to misspeak. I don't know the year, but I watched on Netflix after it came out. I'm going to, I'm going to compare it to the Blackpink documentary on Netflix. And after that documentary came out, the Blackpink documentary, I had a lot of friends who are not into K-pop, but who watched the documentary and they reached out to me and they had a lot of these things to say, like, oh my gosh, like these girls are great, but oh, it must be so hard being in this industry and they're training and like, oh, they, they kind of walked away being like that K-pop industry is insane. Like they are taking away people's youth. They are not letting them express themselves artistically. Like, and whether that was the intention of the documentary, it wasn't. I talked to the director at the time. That's definitely the uh, outlook that people had. I think it's because they already went into it with a bias, right? They have this bias against K-pop. So you're watching it being like, Rosé can't make the music she wants. Like, this is terrible. And Jenny was a trainee when she was, you know, 15 years old. Oh my gosh, what about her youth? You know, you're watching it with this like implicit bias already. So you're coming away from it being like, Oh, that industry. And so I think with the, with nine muses, I will say it was, de it's definitely more in depth. It definitely is like the creation of nine muses and like their journey to debut. And then after debut, them not being immediately successful. So you're seeing a lot of their struggles. It's more heartbreaking in that sense. Obviously, Blackpink is more celebratory because they're the biggest girl group in the world. One of the biggest groups in the world, period. And nine muses, it's more of a struggle and seeing kind of the, the unfortunate reality for about 95% of K-pop groups out there. So two different ways to tell a story, but I think your reaction to it and the way people perceive it ha has a lot to do with their own bias going into it. Yeah. Like what you're primed for. I, th I think it might be a good time to listen to Emily's clip about the, the PR side the integrated marketing consultancy point of view right. since we, yeah, we've started to yeah. mention the labels here and there. What does Emily have to say? Yeah. Before I play that though, I wanted to confirm, this is the, the BBC documentary for Nine Muse. Which one is, are no, we talking about? A, actually, I don't, it was a full length. It's like a full length film. N Nine Muses of Star Empire. Is that yeah. the title? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I just it's wanted really to good. Sure. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend like, but, yeah. It's on YouTube. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. seen it. Yes, neither had I. So I just wanted to make sure that we were talking. Yeah, let's I could, do, a, I could do a sad watch party. How about that? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. But right. I mean, going back to the idea of, you know, the industry pers perspective of this specifically, I think we, we wanted to move on to the question of what we think labels think of these kinds of stories um, and how, how they react to them. And so we reached out to, to Emily, our integrated marketing consultant in Korea, to, to, to possibly give us some perspective for what, what the labels might think of these stories. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's an honor to be back on the K-pop cast. I've listened to every episode since 2016, and I am just always pleased and honored to uh, come back whenever you ask me. So thank you. Yeah, so some of the work we do does involve 
some some PR. And then also we do something within that called media training where with some of these K-pop acts, we um, teach them, quite frankly, how to speak to the media. It's not the easiest thing to be engaging and entertaining. And also not everyone knows how to answer every single controversial question in the best, most respectful way possible, especially if you're not living in countries where some of those controversial questions, um, the subject of them happens daily. So we cover how to do these things. And one thing that's been a great joy for me is you can assume from certain incidents that maybe people are aware of these things, but don't care. But actually what I've found is that actually people either aren't so aware or aren't so familiar with it. And there's actually a genuine curiosity and desire to understand better. And we have frank, honest conversations about these things. And I've learned things from this as, as have the acts that we work with. And because we know that certain American media like to sensationalize these things, we prepare them for the very questions that, you know, you guys have discussed already. So it's unfortunate. And there's a lot more to K-pop that could be uh, delved into. And uh, I used to work in sports media, uh, sports broadcasting, and a lot of my peers, former peers will still kind of bring that stuff up to me because that's what they read. So it's a process. Um, But yeah, I think uh, hopefully we will head in a more positive direction. And yeah, I don't know if this helps anything, but thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to hear Alexis, Crystal, and Todd. And yeah. I like the comparison almost, or not the comparison, but the reference to sports media, because that's often our comparison when people are kind of freaked out by the trainee system of K-pop. My, I'm always like, well, what do you think Olympic athletes endure? What do you mm. think NFL football players go, you know, That's like right. they're young people who are plucked from, you know, wherever and thrown from into, birth. yep. And from, and thrown into a very intense training recommend, like a uh, regimen from when they're very, very young. I mean, the Jackson five, great example too. Like, yep. Joe Jackson had those kids like doing like everything from when they were very, very young. And they're, you know, yeah, all the, the, the pop stars that came through Disney, JT, uh, Britney, mm-hmm. all the Disney stars for sure. Zendaya. Like, yeah. The closest, the closest comparison or similarity I feel is the WWE. Oh yeah. Because yeah. the same people have dreams of being on that stage mm-hmm. They have their images made for them, their names made for them. You know, all those, all those same, all the same things that they go through, they go through a trainee system and they also make their debuts Mm. as a certain wrestler, or it could be a heel. It could be a a good guy, a baby face or a heel. And they make the same huge debut and their tease. It's like almost exactly the same. Oh, I love it. Then there's a performance element too. It's all exactly. performance. Yeah, always. Yeah. I think Emily... I'm going to trademark that. Yeah, you should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a story <laughs> right there. Woo. And there is a dark side of wrestling Yo. too on, on Vice. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's wild. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh yeah, Vice did a whole K-pop doc that ended up being very dark side of K-pop. And yeah. You know, I get the inclination to talk about these things, but yeah, they're they're always covered very narrowly. Yeah. You know, you, you never get the full spectrum. Like they want to talk about mental health and, and and suicide, but they don't cover the full spectrum of like the cultural elements, right? <laughs> like yeah. there's so much, there's so much to unpack. And um, and I think that's you know, the underlying theme of this whole episode, right? Is like 
just, it's about, there has to be room for nuanced conversations and nuanced writing, nuanced reporting. This is not something that you can enter, you know, and I I saw it in your doc, in your Google doc, but also everything happening with BTS and their military service. There's just so much misunderstanding out there. And I feel, I feel for the news writers who are being assigned these stories because it is not somebody who understands BTS. It's not someone who understands music. It's not someone who understands K-pop. It's definitely not someone who understands um, South Korean law. (laughs) You're writing, they're all being sourced. Like, you know, it's all aggregation. So they're reading one article, writing their own. So if you, if one article has a mistruth, then like 10 other articles are going to have a mistruth. And there's so much, you know, I'll never forget when, um, similar to this, but also when BTS announced that they were going to maybe scale back and, um, focus on individual activities and uh, multiple people. And all of my coworkers were like, how do you feel? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, how do you feel that BTS is breaking up? Like, are you okay? Like, they're fine. Like, I don't know what you you read. They're fine. And it's the same now that they're going to the military. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, are you out? I'm like, no, I'm good. Someone who knows like nothing about K-pop asked me the other day, what do you think about BTS disbanding to go to the military? (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like, I have like so many husbands at war right now. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm already a military wife. Like <laughs> I get, I think it's actually fun to go through. Like it's a, it's a community bonding experience, yep. <laughs> but yeah, there's just, um, again, I understand why these outlets are covering it. Cause it's BTS because it's a huge story. Like one has the biggest group the in the clicks. world to the military, you know, it's wild to think about, but yeah. They know that it's going to get the clicks. It's going to get the engagement. Um, fans, whether they realize it or not, even by, by hate tweeting it, are giving it engagement. So that's, yeah, I, I get why it's being covered, but there's so much misunderstanding in the way that it's being covered. And it really just goes to show, like, again, there's no room for nuance when covering this kind of stuff. Yeah, Todd, you you had a, what is it, a, max, a maxim from the news industry, if it bleeds, what? If it bleeds, it leads. Mm. And I also wonder if a lot of these budding writers are on that track, kind of like a paparazzi where they know if they get somebody coming out of their car looking stupid that they're going to get paid a lot more money. Mm. Now, I'm sure a lot of sites, and we're not going to name them here, but they do focus on the more salacious aspects of the the industry. They're churning them out three or four at a time. Mm. And... I mean, would you turn down $1,000? I know I for an online story, I don't think it ever happens, but maybe on the bigger sites it does. I'm not sure. But a lot of, a lot of coin. I've never heard anyone getting Yeah, I'm just being super, super speculative right now. I just wonder if, even if, you know, oh, I'll give you 125 yeah. for maybe somebody that can churn it out in an hour, that's, that's a chunk of change. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the way that journalism is now, and going back to when we very started this conversation, there is an expectation when you're a writer, when you're a news writer, you churn out, like Todd says, maybe five to 10 articles a day. A and, day? You're getting, and you're getting paid by the article oftentimes. Oh, so no. your incentive is to keep writing. Yep. Churn them so, out. So again, like when I say that this is just like, um, it's just more, it's not just writers being ignorant and it's an, it's an entire industry yes. that just needs major work. I mean, we can't put these expectations on writers, but also it's no wonder that these articles are being written the way they are because they probably only had 45 minutes to write it. 
<laughs> you know, mm. like it's an entire industry-wide problem. And I think um, maybe to Emily's larger point, uh, it sounds like when they're media training idols or artists, maybe it's more for video, it could be. Um, I think with video, it's a little different. There's a different approach oftentimes with these videos um, with K-pop idols. The questions are a little bit more there's less, there's less room to really have a discussion, right? It's more like answering something, just something straightforward. That's when you get a lot of the, like, who do you want to collab with? Questions (laughs) that I know fans are very tired of, but yeah. And then gosh forbid you're on a red carpet and then it's like, who knows what they're going to ask. Then there's like zero control over what gets asked on a red carpet, which is why you have so many groups that are not BTS being asked about BTS on red carpets. Ugh. Because when you're a red carpet reporter, you're like, well, what's going to get the headline? I got to ask them about BTS. And so that's why everyone from Jackson Wang and GOT7 mm. to NCT127, they've all been asked about BTS on red carpets because disgraceful like, yeah there's no other it's like almost like the reporter the red carpet reporter doesn't think to ask them anything else right right or even what was that example stephanie we were talking about camp how this woman was just suddenly forced to be an MC, and the one question oh, that she asked the group God. is who can do what was it who can do the best imitation of bts right? yes <laughs> on stage she asked a rookie boy oh, group that in front this. of everyone who mm-hmm. was it? P one Harmony? No, T one four one nine. Oh, okay. I'm sure P one Harmony has gotten that question too. But yeah, you know the whole audience was like, <gasps> there was a gasp. You know, everyone was. From, oh my gosh! I mean, yeah, that's just the general ignorance. I mean, I'm not gonna yeah. lie. I threw in. I, I like everyone else on the internet this week has been watching that um, amazing viral clip of the member of ONF doing the hype boy dance. In yes. these, like, and I threw that into the work slack and I definitely mm. had a few people hit me up in the DMs being like, is that BTS? Oh my God. They They're not in the military like, yet. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. what did I do? <laughs> but I, I love the virality of that clip because I feel like, especially if I have people coming to me and being like, is BTS going to be okay? They're going to be in the military. I could just send, send them, them that clip. Like, and They're going to be like doing this. That, yeah, it's, it's a great reference for somebody who has no idea yeah. what conscription not is like be for on people. the front lines yeah it, that's yeah. exactly why i threw it in the slack because i was like guys because they were everyone was like oh my gosh like i can't believe they're serving and i'm like no they're gonna be mm. serving in a different way <laughs> let me tell you serving looks serving, serving anyway. looks hey <laughs> yeah just i hope though that through covering these artists and through covering this industry or the genre that people do become genuinely curious. And I have seen it happen with a few writers and reporters who went into it knowing nothing and have gotten curious about it, curious enough to watch content. And I think that's what it takes. I mean, you just need someone who is open-minded, who is open to learning more about the community, about the culture I still reference to this day that wonderful um, Dave Holmes profile of BTS and Esquire, which I think is probably the best um, cover mm. story that they they have at the wow. you know they've had. And he has this. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized. But this is great quote about how when you think you've grown out of something and you see a group of people enjoying something, you just assume that's not for you. That you could mm. never enjoy that. And his whole part of the piece is how he 
went over and was like, hey, what is everyone listening to? What? And then he felt like all of that joy that yes. comes with it. So, and I think that's what we need. Um, in I like the how industry. personal that is too. It's vulnerable in a way. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's oftentimes what a lot of our news coverage is missing though, Stephanie. Yeah. It's like, we're not, news writers are not allowed to be vulnerable. They're right. not allowed you know, that's not their job. And so they are covering things um, from a very binary kind of black and white perspective. But again, they just... Right, like only facts. Yeah, only (laughs) facts. And then oftentimes it's like they don't understand to know what's not even factual. What is a fact? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What is a fact? Um, Yeah. So it's just a whole, you know, they don't have the time. They're probably not being compensated for that time well at all. And editors don't care to really correct it or to fact check it because as Todd says, if it bleeds, it leads. Like we're going to go with the sensationalized headline that's going to get us clicks, that's going to get us ad dollars, revenue, that's going to keep our site running. Yeah. And then I think on that note, I want to wrap, I think we can wrap up with the Mm -hmm. last question about, um, you know, what we as readers and consumers and fans should do about these kinds of storytelling cliches in, in journalism, because we've we've talked recently, you know, fans, when it comes to, you know, certain coverage can be very um, aggressive in their reactions to, to certain <laughs> yeah. stories. They tend to to be the arbiters of truth in most cases, especially gatekeeping what I guess the locals should be learning about their groups or the industry in general. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like should, should fans tweet the the writer or the publication and say like, this sucked, like, <laughs> or just ignore the story and don't read it. Or like what, as, as journalists, what would you like to see the readers do? Well, I never want to see a writer like get harassed yeah. by Mm-hmm. thousands of fans, you know, that's as someone who's endured some level of that, it, it never feels good. It's always feel, it always feels awful. I wish that just as I'm saying that there needs to be more nuanced coverage of K-pop, I wish there could be more nuanced replies. <laughs> you know, I wish there was a way for fans to call out the inaccuracies, the actual inaccuracies, you know, and, and the coverage without it being so, um, without it being so aggressive. Because then uh, to Todd's point, I often think a lot of times the publications just kind of like shut down, not that they shut down physically, but they kind of ignore it, you know, because it's such an onslaught. Like, why should they pay attention to that? kind Oh, yeah. I don't have to listen to that. Look at their tone and the language they're using. And then it's really easy to be like, well, the fans are just attacking us. So Mm -hmm. like the fans are really vicious. And then that becomes the narrative. Right. And then the fans get mad that that's the narrative. And then they're like, you're playing victim. And it's just, it's a lot. I would say I like the, the screenshot tactic that I Mm. see sometimes where it's, you know, you have the one person who screenshots everything. And then if it's an article again, that is getting something wrong or, um, that covers, you know, the dark side of K-pop, but it's just the same tired story that we've seen. I I've seen a lot of the screenshots happening and then the fans will reply to the screenshots. I've Mm -hmm. seen that. That seems a little bit better because you're not giving the article engagement and you're not giving, Mm. you're not, you're not um, 
sending around the same link so that people can click on it, right? Because I think that's the way that you can get your point across is when you don't engage and when Mm. you don't click the link. um, I think an editor will realize like, oh, why did that Mm -hmm. story not do well? Why did that story not live up to the expectation I had? And then they'll see like, oh, it's because we you got this, 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 and this wrong. Yeah. I think that's definitely one way. And I know I'm probably just, I know fans are just going to be fans, but that would be like my plea, I think. It's just to not engage. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I try not to engage as well. It's such, it's so hard to turn the the vehicle around into a more positive space because everybody's going to hate. That's what it's for. Mm-hmm. That's what Twitter's for. Yeah. Is to hate. I guess support writers that you appreciate that mm, do a good job. Mm. Groom your groom your timeline. Uh, <laughs> uh, use the mute on certain uh, certain uh, topics. That's always good. And just I guess through like what Crystal and hopefully others have shown is that you're injecting an amount of media literacy. You're trying to educate folks that probably not known, not knowing about certain groups or, or certain things. I also feel like what Emily was mentioning about media training for K-pop star, for K-pop um, groups. Why don't we start a consultancy together? Yeah. You know, <laughs> for groups or for fans, I would like to consult some fans. <laughs> like we can consult we, them. On oh, like I'm media. in. But I, I feel also, like for both. Yeah. For both. It's like, okay, you're going to go to, JYP label today and talk to these rookies. And then you just lay it out. You're going to get asked this thing and do this. This is how you, how you handle it. There's, I feel like there's opportunities for it because there's always F ups on the side of the groups because, you know, from appropriating different cultures and having uh, statues on the ground and we could all nip this stuff in the bud right away. So there isn't that whole generation of, of, of negative press and, and and hate for these stand cold for for these stands. I even hate the word stands. Yeah, I mean, super. I just fan. don't like using it. Yeah, but a lot of times it's um, you can't avoid it. I just feel like if everyone was just smarter, this we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. <laughs> it's like the end of every episode. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's like uh, invest in the schools. You know, invest in uh, multicultural studies and you know imperialism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Make some friends outside of your circle. Yeah. Because this circle of hate is never going to end, you know. Yeah. Unless we do something about it. Dismantle the system. I love it. That's (laughs) right. That's exactly. We should just dismantle everything and then start fresh. Start fresh. Yeah. It's, I fully agree with that. Yeah. It's just a, it's a, it's a tall order, but again, Put the right people in a position, maybe not of power, but of, of a position to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, I know there are certain sites that do consult with some journalists, with their, especially the journalists that know K-pop really well. Um, I've done, I've read articles right before they've been published to be like, hey, are we getting anything wrong? So like there is a move to that. Um, I then think it's a lot of, it's asking a lot on the journalist side to be like, oh, I'm giving you a lot of labor now, but it's a step in the right direction. And I think for fans, just being a little savvier and not engaging, like Todd said, and and then engage and read the pieces that you love and that you think do it right. 
and show and put your full support of against those pieces and make sure the editors know like this is what we want more of because all these decisions are being made by clicks right and by traffic and by engagement mm-hmm. so Dollars. there are fans that are very savvy about that i think fans have figured that out yeah. but maybe some of the younger ones maybe some of um still need to be reminded of that so yeah just really really engage and with the pieces that you love and start from there and maybe just kind of disengage from the ones that don't matter. All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. So wrapping up, can you let everyone know where they can find you online? And if you have anything fun, you know, that you want to promote coming up. So starting with Crystal. Yeah. um, You can find me online on Twitter. I'm at Crystal Bell, the two nouns. And, um, Coming up, I have an interview with NCT 127 coming up what? next week. Yeah, so I'm very, yeah, I was thinking a lot about them as we were having this conversation. And yeah, I, it's nothing, no dark side at all. It's all vibes. It's NCT 127. All vibes. So, all vibes. Uh, you can reach me, Todd, at, at Nato Todd, N A T T O T O D D, on Twitters and on the inst- Instagrams. Lately, I've been. I'm going through Hua Su's book, Stay True, which delves into a lot about fan culture and, and and finding yourself. So I've been going through a lot of my flyers from the past, and um, I'm actually going to put together a zine of uh, Ray flyers from the 90s and from downtown San Jose. It's coming out pretty soon. Nice. I love that. See, that's the right way to do fandom. <laughs> Just We like, approve. That's the other side of this. If you don't like it, create it yourself. That is, listen, that I've seen, there's more and more of that happening and it makes me really happy. And, and you can follow me at Michaela JK Pop and Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at sparker2 and you can tweet all of us at the K-pop cast. And before we go, make sure you rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, sign up for hard-hitting editorial on our newsletter and join our Slack to make some new friends who enjoy thinking critically about K-pop. Links to all that stuff in the description of this episode. Once again, thank you so, so much to our illustrious guests, our journalist friends, Todd, Crystal, and to the folks who sent in really like well thought out comments. That's Emily and Jenna. Thank you to everyone for enlightening us on this issue. Thanks for having us. Feel us, huh? Jumping off the bed, let's